I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch has become fully drift compatible. say that now that we're drift compatible <laughs> yeah like i could have just talk. i could have just thought it as charlie hunnam says uh you don't even have to really talk much but they do uh, they talk all the time like i'm not gonna cinema sense this but they're constantly saying do this to each other in the drift uh yeah they <laughs> they at no point use their like they use it to operate the the they're talking to they're talking to the audience. They are, but they're not talking. I don't know them. why. I've seen this movie a few times, and for some reason, this time I was really keyed into how often they talk to each other. After there's a whole thing about you feel each other's thoughts. You're one person. <laughs> they're like, use your arm. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, uh, but yeah, you know what? It's okay. It's a fun. It's a fun, great movie. I love this movie. Uh, but yeah, where we love to watch a movie podcast, pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our eighth. Week of the Gregorian calendar summer of our double super size matters month, where we're covering mostly Godzilla movies. This is our second and final detour away from Godzilla movies to cover Pacific Rim. And, and just like with our last one, the reason that we're trying to do a little bit of a detour, besides the fact that it's 10 weeks of Godzilla movies and a lot of people have already probably tuned out. Um, they, uh, cause we're not a pod- Godzilla podcast. And if you don't like Godzilla movies, this has been a tough summer for you. Uh, but we, you know, Godzilla is its own thing. There's tons of movies. There's a lot to cover, but I mean, Godzilla's also just been an amazing influence on movies from different eras as well. And so, you know, in the sixties, there was a ton of Japanese kaiju suitmation monster movies. And we covered the X from outer space. And as we get into the era where, you know, special effects have evolved to the point where making giant kaiju on screen is actually not not just doable, but doable in a way that doesn't look like complete shit, like Roland Emmerich's uh, 1998 Godzilla movie, you have a lot of filmmakers that are trying to take their stab at giant monsters. So you, you, you're in this era of the 2000s, especially with legendary pictures, where yeah they're doing um they're doing a lot of big monsters and sometimes that's stuff like you know uh, a clash of the titans and release the kraken or all these other things but there's you know there there's kind of a drive to eventually say hey we have some technology what would a godzilla movie a modern godzilla movie look like and we're going to get that the following year from the same studio but in the meantime um we we kind of debated a little bit what movie to do that kind of represents this era that's not a Godzilla movie but is indebted to 
kaiju movies. And I think we were kind of debating between this and Cloverfield. And ultimately, Cloverfield, while definitely has like this idea of what if we did Godzilla as a found footage, I think it actually represents where Godzilla goes after this less than this movie. This movie is not only by the same studio, not only using the same special effects team as the MonsterVerse will end up using, but also, you know, is Gilmel, Guillermo del Toro's uh, love letter to to kaiju and anime movies. And it's why, you know, he the film is dedicated to Ray Harryhausen uh, for uh, 20,000, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which we talked about in the first episode, and to Ishiro Honda for kind of making these kaiju monsters and so yeah it's it still has a lot of anime influence and still has the mech component through there that is you know closer to something like an evangelion than a godzilla but it is still clearly uh you know they're called kaiju and they're they're monsters that are destroying cities and, and clearly that's something that del toro specifically has an eye towards so we decided to do this one i would still love to do cloverfield at some point i think doing a you know, kind of the two, the late 2000s uh, found footage renaissance would be a really fun theme month. But I think ultimately, while that has some Godzilla DNA, this one is the closer to being the, the era's influence by Godzilla. And it also fits from a thematic standpoint because, you know, again, we're, the last one we covered was Godzilla Final Wars. That movie comes out in 2004. There's kind of a dearth of giant monsters on the big screen. We were still a year away from Gareth... Uh, Gareth Edwards' uh, Godzilla movie, which we're going to cover next week. Uh, but this was – I know when I saw this in theaters in 2013, Peter, I was not just excited because the Del Toro component, but also because it just – that kind of like, you know, giant Godzilla-sized monsters tearing through cities had been absent uh, from from the big screen in a long time. And it felt like if we can't have a Godzilla movie, this was the next best thing. Yeah, yeah. And we could have made more space for Cloverfield. But the reason I wanted to get this in more than I wanted to get Cloverfield in is because Cloverfield and War of the Worlds are both movies with big disaster, uh, big disasters happening, big, um, you know, monster robot, alien freak mutants, you know, what have you. Massive things that are on kaiju scale, um, taking down cities and people running away from it. They are movies that are reacting to the terror of post 9-11, the way the original Godzilla uh, is. So there, there would have been definitely some some ammo there to, to have that conversation. Uh, however, uh, Pacific Rim, especially after visiting all these previous movies, Pacific Rim feels like a, a better um, both stitching point and alternative history to what we would get in the new MonsterVerse because... Um, <laughs> because the movie is fun and kooky and has some goofball energy like the original Showa movies. Like it feels like a comic book or, or an anime yeah. brought to life. Um, whereas Godzilla the next year was sold to us in the era of the quote unquote grimdark and was sold to us in the era of um this is about we're going to take it seriously realism yeah. and and and, and just uh, burning seriousness yeah so like like um nothing is funny let's and then uh that series would eventually sort of 
course correct somewhat. I mean, Im- um, immediately. You haven't seen King yeah. of the Monsters yet. They're like, oh, we could have some fun. And then uh, Godzilla versus Kong is like, let's. what if we do like Neon Axe shit? Where there's like a set of, like there's a Hollow Earth. King Kong is, uh, they have a neon battle where he wields a giant axe. Yeah, let's do all that. Like it, 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 it. In some ways, it reminds me the MonsterVerse, which we're going to talk more about next week. Reminds me a little bit of the height, the the Heisei series, Peter, which was like, remember the the first one is is Return of Godzilla, which is like, let's go back to like Godzilla as a as a commentary on nuclear destruction, and like you know, a lot of the other non Godzilla action in that movie is like Russia and America battling over how to stop Godzilla with nuclear weapons, and like whether their nuclear weapons are going to cause more destruction. Like, let's get back to the seriousness. And then, like, uh, immediately after, and their their follow-up to that is like, what if Aubrey 2 met James Bond and there's a ghost plant lady? <laughs> like, yes, they, they, yes, yes. And that's, that is kind of what – like, I love King of the Monsters quite a lot. I'm excited to – um, to talk about that one, I don't know. Like, it is a movie that I think people that wanted a sequel to Godzilla 2014 were a little bit disappointed by because it got silly and goofy almost immediately. But that movie rules, and I, I do think you're going to like it because they really are. I mean, it's it's the director of Trick and Trick or Treat and Krampus. He's like, let's you know, Michael Doherty. Like, he's like, let's have a ton of fun here. <laughs> And spent yeah. million, hundreds of millions of dollars to do it. it. And we do live in an era where people have almost a, a, a fetishistic attachment to what a, a – a fetishistic attachment to what a uh, sincere film effort is. Like, people don't – like with the Marvel stuff, like a lot of the goofiness of Marvel has been beaten out of it between the co- adaptation from the comic books to the the screen, um, or it's been modernized in a way so that bros can't laugh at it. Um, and I feel like we're existing almost uh, in a time where like that sort of dorky sincerity, uh, the dorky sincerity of um, a Pacific Rim or some of these Showa era movies where like, you know, people could laugh and make fun of this because it has like wild eccentricities. Like I, people are, I think we're living in an era where culturally people are more easily embarrassed by eccentricities oh, yeah. in movies. And like they want things to feel cool in a very specific way because that coolness is what they're, what they're actually looking for is legitimacy. They want something that feels um like a legitimate cultural object and legitimate cultural objects look like this. They sound like this. Their aesthetics are like this and something that has a goofy sense of humor about itself, but isn't couched in being an outright comedy um, doesn't fit in that because something has a goofy sense of humor about itself. All of a sudden you're, you're reminded of the fact that these are, these were formerly uh, nerd stomping grounds that corporations have found a way to sell back to you. Yeah. I mean, um, the, I, 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 it, I actually I like Godzilla 2014. I'm excited to talk about. It. I like it as well, like, and I like I like a lot of Marvel movies, and yeah. I like I like Godzilla 2014. But like, there's there's a there's a sense of of seriousness equals legitimacy in the past few years that has just gotten on my nerves. Agreed. Like, I mean, that's even the Heisei series. Like we talked about that, that it has a reputation to be more serious than the Showa era, and it's kind of like, okay, in what way are you to what what in what way have you seen King Kong or like Godzilla versus King Ghidorah? Because that that is not a serious movie it's just it has a little bit more um technical prowess and special effects have aged a certain way but 
it's not a grim dark movie. And I, I do like the monster verse because it almost immediately after the first one, which is a good movie, decides like, you know, I'd much rather have, I think, a, a long term for my Godzilla movies. I that I'd much rather have like the dad Daddy Lannister from Game of Thrones being a mustache twirling uh, environmental terrorist villain while giant, giant monsters are unfrozen as part of a fucking Project Monarch that runs through the 70s and is tied to the Vietnam War and King Kong on Scala. Like, that is somewhat more fun than, like, Brian Cranston being like, they took my wife from me. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, again, both can exist and both are good. I, I love both those movies. But I'm also not committed to the seriousness long-term of giant kaiju. And you're, you know, to transition back to Pacific Rim, that is what Del Toro is giving us. And it didn't help that, or it it helped that um, right before, so he wasn't the original progenitor of this movie. He had a hand in co-writing it and designing and everything like that. But he was going to produce someone else's script when, uh, uh, at when and he was going to direct at the mountains of madness, um, but uh, Universal, I believe, finally said, "Hey, you either need to budge on the budget or you need to budge on the R rating." And he wouldn't budge on either, and they canceled the movie even with Tom Cruise attached. That happened on a Friday. On Monday, he was the director of Pacific Rim announced, and so he had all these designs for monsters that he was going to use in At the Mountains of Madness that he repurposed or straight up just brought into this movie. So you have, um, which he has said, that's not speculation. Like he said, I just used a lot of my monster designs because I had spent a lot of time and made and, and used them here in, in Pacific Rim. So you ha- you definitely have, I like, having, you know, read At the Mountains of Madness, I'm not quite sure what that would have looked like. I'm assuming there is some tweaking for for giant kaiju. I, I've read the script. Um, I've read the script for Del Toro's uh, movie. Um, it, it is like a big spectacle movie um, with big monsters that Tom Cruise is trying to get away from. Oh, okay. Um, it does have it does have some more of the world's DNA. Uh, it's much darker because it's a rated R movie. Um it does have some more of the world's DNA um, because it is like about Tom Cruise being this helpless little bug. Yeah, they really should have made that movie. But the movie sounds really sick. Um, actually, so we've got there's three there's three movies essentially that were in contention at the time, and he had to walk away from two of them. Um, there's at the Mountains of Madness was something that he'd been working on for years, and, and yes, Aaron, like he just wouldn't he wouldn't budge on the budget, and he wouldn't budge on the R rating, and he was just like, well, why even make this movie if like I I can't get those? Like we have Tom, and he also he was more brazen about it because he had yeah Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise. He like, yeah he, he, he was he, like I have Tom Cruise on here, like we we can we can get this done, we can take it to another studio, it's a public domain yeah. book, right? Um, it just ended up falling apart for various reasons. Never he's it's sort of it, it hurt him too much. The other. The other project that had that uh, was in the in the midst of falling apart at this time was The Hobbit. Oh yeah, um, and he did an enormous amount of work on that. And just as a reminder to people that forget or weren't following fucking uh, trades at the time, Peter Jackson was like actively looking for his replacement. He did for not. Movies. He did not want to do the the Hobbit trilogy. Yeah, and you can tell Which, by watching. Yeah, the if you've, I've only seen the first Hobbit trilogy, and that seems like someone who doesn't want to make these fucking movies. But then again, you're like, okay, so you didn't want to make them. Why did you make three that are 15 hours long? <laughs> and he did tons of concept yeah. work and active designs, and like did 
thousands and thousands of, of pages of pitch deck and like he did what del toro does which is just like falls in love with the aesthetics and he gets people like spiritually excited about it but he is someone who is is incredibly type a as a director in a way that like yeah he says like oh it gets me into trouble which is like he doesn't really use it. We've talked about this with Hellboy 1 and 2 and Blade. He doesn't really use assistant directors, really. No. Um, or he, he uses them, but he doesn't use them. He uses them for, like, administrative tasks. He doesn't, like, send them to do action sequences the way a lot of directors do. Um, and he, as well, he um, kind of everything goes through him. And it's part of his, like, auteur mystique, right? Um, is that like he's a fun person to collaborate with, but at the end of the day, he's making all the decisions. Yeah. Uh, um, he, which, I mean, he has a very specific vision, which is which is why I think Peter, you and I are such a big fan of his movies, but also why I think sometimes it's hard for him to get over the line with um, in, into the great movie from really good movies because he is is really pushing back other collaborators to to dive into what he wants. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And this is an example of one of his movies that I I love very much. Me too. I now, especially like I love it now more than even when it came out, which is not usually true of CGI spectacle movies. They usually age like shit. Yeah, I I think this is true of the Godzilla Godzilla 2014 too. Like I was watching a few scenes from that um in a retrospective to like do some research for this month like whatever legendary special effects team like and i recently rewatched skull island which i think looks really good too like they they have a good special effects team over there yeah yeah these these this movie has aged uh miraculously and i have a whole spiel that'll probably eat up a lot of the body of this episode about why del toro should be trusted with cgi when um other directors and producers aren't uh aren't necessarily shouldn't be trusted with it good kim um, uh, you know we we really have uh have neglected our rants and raves section of our podcast <laughs> so i'm glad we're getting rants and raves back i i was watching rants this movie and, and just like 2022 I, I, I was watching this movie and I was just like, I was just enraptured by his vision. And like, there's problems with it, but like a lot of the problems that I had with it in when it released almost a freaking decade ago, man. Um, yeah. Released in summer of um, 2013. 2013, July of 2013, uh, after being delayed from 2012. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, almost like the, the context in which it was kind of dropped, I think, kind of hurt it. And now that we've it has a terrible a t- title, I, I don't like the title at all. It's not really enticing, right? It, it reminds me of. Do you remember when they were gonna? Uh, there was the, the snakes on the plane. Working table was like, like, uh, like jet blue four seven two or something. And it's just like, <laughs> oh god, like that's not what it sounds like think, a nine eleven. I don't think it was jet blue, but <laughs> but it was like, yeah, it was like airplane. It was just the airplane title, and then. Everyone's like, why would you choose Snakes on a Plane was a much better title than whatever the fucking, you know, change that you made. And I do feel that way about Pacific Rim. Like, I get it. It happens in the Pacific Rim. But, like, your, your movie's about giant fucking kaiju monsters fighting robots. Like, you got to think of something a little better. Yeah, it could have been called Teeth Puncher. And it Rock'em Sock'em Kaiju. Right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't uh, get paid the big the, bucks. You're the vision, man. I'm not, yeah. Toro. Uh, yeah, I think the title's bad. I think I actually, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I think it's serviceable, which is not what this movie needs. A hundred percent. 
it, it, it needs it's 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 epic sounding in a very sort of traditional sense. It yeah. needs something more than serviceable. Yeah, I I am only being half joking when I say that like I think the reason that this didn't have as big of a box office as it did is the title. Like I do I think I think the title hurt even like I couldn't get Maya to watch this movie with me. I'm like, do you want to watch Pacific Rim? She's like, mm. and I showed her the preview, and she was not interested. But I, I think the title that she's saying Pacific Rim, like when I say Jurassic Park, I think it's like, oh, interesting dinosaurs. I like that. Like Pacific Rim, she was like, I, I, all that sounds very boring to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just not. It doesn't. Um... Yeah, I mean, it, and it wasn't a success in the United States. Like it was a success worldwide, which is why which is, it justified a it justified it justified a, a sequel. But a sequel I mean, and an anime series. Yeah, it it made it was a budget of two hundred million dollars. It made more in China than it did in the United States, which was not common for in twenty thirteen. Yeah, and it's um it's a movie that it's a movie that has uh the 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 the, the um. The double the the double sided blade of um, those international releases, right? Which is like, it didn't tank Del Toro's career to have the, this movie made. He still got to make great movies pretty quickly after, but he was kind of back to he was kind of back to making mid budget movies right after this, right? Yeah, he did um, Crimson Peak and then Shape of Water and then inexplicably followed up Shape of Water four years later with Nightmare Alley, which is not yeah. which is a movie I like, but it felt like he had a bigger blank check after Shape of Water than to make Nightmare Alley, which feels like a $30 million over-the-plate movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it feels like an Oscar movie with his aesthetics yeah. draped over it, right? Um, yeah, now but, like Pinocchio. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that either. Um, so, um, it, it, it didn't tank his career. It didn't make him a pariah for wasting uh, big studio bucks on this. However, um, it was embarrassing enough for him that he didn't get to go immediately from this and parlay it into um, Hellboy three. He didn't yeah. get to part. He didn't get to parlay it into rebooting uh, it at the mountains of madness. Or something. Yeah. Like he had to kind of, he, he continually does this with his career. He'll have a big hit and then something will happen right after that where it's like, Oh, okay. Um, so back to the drawing board, I guess. Um, yeah, because I mean, he went back to Universal, which canceled the uh, at the Mountains of Madness. They let him make Crimson Peak, but it was like, yeah, thirty million dollar budget, and then you can go make your R-rated movie. Yeah, and and I think like he's someone who's probably very good at at, at the pitch, right? Um, yeah, well, that- he's very he's very fun to listen to talk. Yeah, he's a great interview, right? Yeah. Uh, that's part of the reasons I like watching the special features on the DVD is because, yeah. like, he'll just tell you. It's like, <laughs> I was reading this book at this time, and uh, this was a pain in the ass, and this person was a pain in the ass. He, like, he is like the opposite J.J. Abrams. Like, he's not mystery boxing. He's like, well, here's what I did. So I had all these designs for At the Mountains of Madness, and I just redid them all for this movie because I had this movie coming up instead. He, he he does that. And even like why he wanted to make this movie besides loving Godzilla movies and anime which are two things that he called out directly and are very obvious in the in the finished product here. He also had always wanted to see, you probably read this he always wanted to see two things in Godzilla movies he never got to see and both of them are in this movie which are both very funny. Did you, did you, did you see this interview he did? Uh, no. So 
the two things that you always wanted to see in a Godzilla movie and didn't get to see was, which one I think is really good. The idea of seeing a kaiju attack a city from at the at the ice ground level of a child or the through the through the eyes of a child so he felt like he had never seen that in a movie and you know we get that in kind of the flashback scene where uh you know uh, where she's watching uh the kaiju come through and kind of almost imagining through her memory that it's coming after her directly as opposed to this just giant figure that part makes a lot of sense um i mean obviously del toro has a history of like i want to see this through the eyes of you know <laughs> i want to see the spanish war <laughs> you know <laughs> spanish civil war through the eyes of a child oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah i mean devil's and, backbone yeah and uh, or devil yeah devil's backbone or well pants, and and pan's labyrinth yeah yeah um so that makes a lot of sense the other one is you always want to see a kaiju give birth oh my god yeah it is it is it, 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 it there so I he didn't want he didn't want Manila to be adopted. He's like in my version of Son of Godzilla. Godzilla lays down, spreads its legs. <laughs> Manila just fucking burrows out of that. I do love that out of their guts. That this movie, which is I think cut uh, apparently he he cut an hour of the movie and it's mostly characterization and stuff. Uh, Caron and yeah. Um, Alfonso Caron and Iri um, uh, Gonzalez and Iri I should say. Um, they, yeah, they both edited this movie. They both helped edit the movie, um, and he got some advice from some some other like sort of people that had made movies on this scale before. Curon made it better. Kind of nervous I'm, about the the vision. Yeah, I'm assuming Iri Nerito made it worse. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, they kind of helped. They were just yeah. like they tightened up some stuff. They were like, "Hey, this actually like this actually is not the movie you're making." Like, yeah. you know, creation through uh, re- reduction, yeah. right? Um, so he, uh, he he cut like an hour of characterization, um, and the movie is like it is so watchable. I ended up watching it um, almost twice this week because. Um, I watched it once, and my wife fell asleep partway through, and then I went upstairs to go to the bathroom, and the movie was over, and then she woke up, and then she was like, I wanted to see the part after they fight again. She was like, that was really cool. And then she restarted, and I just sat on the couch and watched yeah. the second half of the movie all over again, and I had I had no impatience about it. Like, the movie is is remarkably nuts and, nuts and bolts in, in some sense, however, tucked kind of right in the middle of it is an elaborate evocative set uh a set of a uh, set piece of world building with the character Hannibal Chow played by Ron Perlman yeah and if and and that is where the movie goes from I appreciate this movie for like its technical craftsmanship because I think the CGI Agreed. looks incredible it looks better than pretty much any blockbuster I've seen recently um and then that up against um, like just weird anatomical Ron Perlman, Charlie Day oddness. All, all that stuff is. I mean, that is. And critics said that's this. The, at that's the time why you too. fall in love with the movie like this, right? That it's, is. It's, it's that the is the movie. Details. That's. I mean, that's the stuff. But it makes sense, right? Like the. Like we know Del Toro enough to know that like, there's probably a version of this if he had his druthers. That's the story of them like you know a crazy scientist and a person trying to profit off this new hellscape where there's an economy around like kaiju 
parts. Like that is that is clearly where the soul of the movie is when it comes to what Del, Del Toro is the most interested in. Like the militarization component, which is as we know, especially with Shape of Water, is very much something that not only is Del Toro not probably as interested in as the Charlie Day Ron Perlman stuff, but also like against in general uh, as a as a whole, like you can tell that that feels like a little bit more of him hitting the marks that he understands he needs to hit to tell the story of like mech fighters. Like there's some good stuff there. Idris Alba's great. You know, it's not that the story there isn't compelling, but it's really nuts and bolts in a way that feels different than usually the type of characters that Del Toro tries to focus on. And yeah, where the heart of the movie and where the weirdness and and the, the the funny scenes and the compelling scenes from a human perspective really sing is in the the Charlie Day Ron Perlman stuff. Yeah, and the fact that. Ron, uh, that Guillermo del Toro was making his big studio like love letter to kaiju and mecha mecha um, animation, um, and he couldn't fucking resist to lay out anatomical the anatomical build out of these creatures um, in a more like literal anatomical sense, right? Like, of yeah. course, the creatures all have anatomy that sort of correlates with uh, anatomy of real life animals. Like, there's an there's a creature that has sort of like an electric eel ability. There's one that spits acid. Like, yeah. like lots of like lots of creatures, lots of insects. Like, um, but like I mean, like literally anatomical. Like, <laughs> he's interested in like. There's a scene where he just walks around a room and all the kaiju's like body parts are like in yellow uh, yellow vats, which like he has that scene in. <sighs> Mimic, Devil's Backbone. Uh, it's in uh, Nightmare Alley. Yeah, obviously in the Hellboy movies. Like the scene where you walk into a room and there's just preserved organs and jars. Yeah, like, he has that in almost every one of his movies. And in this, in the middle of this movie, you're like, oh, Charlie Day is going to go do research. And usually, this would be a point in the movie where you'd be like, Oh, some guy. Some guy's gonna point some guns at him. Like, yeah. who gives a shit? Instead, it's like those two become like, best friends immediately, and are like, and it lets excited. you know, yeah. yes, and it, it lets you know what this world actually looks like, right? Like, yeah. um, oh, what are the black markets that are building up? How do people hide when the kaiju's come? Okay, so rich people get fancy shelters, but the average person just basically goes in like. A, a, a subway hole in hopes that the kaiju doesn't stand on top of it, right? Like, well, there's so much of that, like that's just that's just dropped in, like the world building stuff in a world that is like basically living with this constant kaiju attack. That like there's the there's like the news report that talks about like, hey, uh, kaiju's are huge, and when they get cut up by these mechs. They uh, they bleed everywhere. And that blood is actually starting to become a huge concern like oil spills, right? That are like destroying oceans and wildlife and all this other stuff. Because it's not evaporating. It's like this blue goo that is being poured everywhere in our cities now. And like that's mentioned for 45 seconds and is like uh, something that you just think about like, oh, yeah, of course. Like if kaijus are getting cut up, that's a ton of like, you know – tons and tons and tons of blood is coming out where is it going like there's and i'm sure there's somewhere in like del toro's like fucking museums of like all the different ideas he had around like 
what this world ultimately looks like. And every flash we get of that is so goddamn interesting. And Peter, I don't need to skip ahead to this, but you talked about like, oh, should I watch Uprising? And I had the same concept that you had when like Stephen Denight's fine. He, the guy that directed, I think he, I forget if he did like some Angel or Buffy stuff, but like he's a competent director and it's produced by Del Toro. And he had initially wanted to make a sequel like he does for a lot of his Liz movies. And like, and Charlie Day's in it, like, I, I, you know, but the part that's missing is all of that. It is, like, it's it's not as well shot and directed as Del Toro, which I'm assuming you'll cover in your rants and raves section. But it also, like, is missing all of the world building. And so you just end up having, like, less interestingly framed and blocked monster fights and then no compelling characters and barely any compelling side stuff and so you end up with even though the the budget and the scale is still there it's missing what made this movie special because it's missing all that other stuff of like oh shit what are they doing with monster blood in this world yeah yeah because this movie has an incredible prologue it's maybe a minute and a half long total Great. one of the like, best openings of like a movie i think yeah period. they show and, you an incredible fucking monster taking down the golden gate bridge is recognizable he has he does what del toro does best with this which is like he makes something that's bigger than life uh operate at our scale like we have like actual cop cars tipping on a bridge and actual cars tipping on a bridge and 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 actual people in peril um up against this massive well-designed the the kaiju in this are so uniquely designed like they they create a scenario where like i'm I, i i i'm like it kind of raises uh it kind of raises my bar for what your monsters are gonna look like in like future movies like i'm like oh great it's a bat with more teeth. <laughs> yeah. How how dare you? Have you seen Pacific Rim? Like, I don't think people give, like, the the design of monsters and creatures in these movies is usually so uninspired that having one where, like, they've actually thought about the mechanics of how this thing's, like, bones move yeah. and that, like, how can we make this face somewhat resemble something you know? Like, it sort of resembles an iguana, but when it opens its mouth slightly, you're like, oh my god, this thing is a monstrosity from hell. Um, and then it runs through and in our, from our world, which I think this movie canonically Obama is president when um, <laughs> when the first um, invasion of kaiju happened because they show a picture of Obama on screen. Um, yeah, I know it's just supposed to be a president, yeah, but it's the president they choose. So I think canonically, uh, we get invaded when Obama's president. Um, it takes forever for us to take down one of the kaiju, like tons of planes, tons of deaths. The the um, kaiju takes down city after city after city before we actually get it down. Um, and then it runs through like. <clears throat> um, there's like a pop culture reaction to it. Like kids even have toys of the kaiju. Oh yeah. Like people start making a joke out of them eventually because that's what we do. That's like how we we um, swallow trauma yeah. as a culture. And then um, the movie kind of shows its its um, face a little bit, which is like the movie is part of the movie's tone and its sort of goofball tone is that it's an optimistic apocalyptic movie. Like it's a movie where horrible horrible shit is going to happen, but um, if we show our best face, if we unite, if we fight as hard as we can, um, uh, we will overcome it. Like it's a movie about, it's a movie that literally like it needs you, it, it needs you to believe that sort of optimism of the Showa era where it's like, 
if you if we all stick together and we put aside our differences and we build these big robots together, <laughs> we can all get along, which is like a lot of even anime is like way more um a lot of anime even is way more um, a pessimistic and dark than than uh, that is. Like a lot of anime, like even okay, so like let's talk about uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which we I, I wanted Aaron to catch this year because I I thought the connections between that and Pacific Rim would be kind of fun. Um, in Neon Genesis Evangelion, like the fact that every nation has their own version of an Ava unit. Um, or a lot of the developed nations have their own version of an Ava unit in, in uh, versions of the story uh, is essentially part of a massive conspiracy. Like it's a part of a massive piece of darkness. That's not each nation being like, oh yeah, we want to show our best face. Like let's, let's go save Japan and you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be thankful to us. Like it's a part of a, a dark conspiracy. In this movie, there's a hint that there's a dark conspiracy going on because the funding gets cut for, um, the, um, yeah, just the remarkably, just remarkably boneheaded moves. Like, I don't know. We're going to, we're going to stop the, very successful fight the monsters and punch them in the face program and build a wall. Yeah. A wall that instantly doesn't work. And then they don't give them their money back at any point in the movie. Like yeah. the clock is still ticking for them to lose all their money. Yeah. But anyways, like they all lose their money. And and when I was watching this, the sec- this time I was like, Oh, is this, was there a conspiracy? Like do some people want the Kaiju to keep invading? Like, no, it's just, it's just, you know, uh, short sighted, yeah. short sighted leadership. Yeah. Um, and like I was watching this, and I was although like, you know, it's that's how you know it's a fantasy movie because the idea that there would be a world where the government would not pour money into the military and giant weapons is is incorrect, especially something that the, the, the military loves uh, uh, the military loves showing off their dick with like yeah. um, they could have built like, okay, a robot we, dick here. They're, 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 they love showing off like okay, we've got a new plane and this plane is a stealth fighter and we can show it at these trade shows and we can you know show these off to like the president and the president will be impressed. You know what the president's not impressed by? Clerical software that helps track how the uh, ammunition moves from a production facility to a distribution facility. However, the latter yeah. is way more helpful to us than a stealth bomber, right? But yeah. the stealth bomber is the thing that costs a billion dollars and like impresses a president and impresses politicians. And you can yeah. and a politician be like, I can build that in my my district, right? So like I can guarantee I can fucking guarantee you what you're saying is correct. Like we would we would keep the money at least America would keep the money flowing because we have a massive military yeah. industrial complex that would yeah. be like yeah build build Jaegers here build Jaegers in I mean West are Virginia. we sh- are we sure that Donald Trump wasn't the president and just wanted to build that wall <laughs> it's, it's possible He's you, do you remember that guy do you remember Donald Trump oh, <laughs> and his Donald wall Trump. he kept talking about yeah what a goof I can't wait for him to be a trivial pursuit question <laughs> oh man that guy you had a TV show once wasn't very good the news. Uh, yeah, he was on that TV show quite often too. He still is. He's a big part of the, the those seasons. <laughs> He's on Fox News season. But season yeah, he had, he had another show. Look it up. It's true. Then he was all about walls, much like the WWE. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah, much like the ineffective politicians of Pacific Rim, <laughs> build the wall. Yeah, it, it doesn't I, work. I was, I was, I was watching this and I was like, no, Del Toro, the answer, I mean, obviously he's not the writer, but fuck it. Uh, 
He, he broke no, no, stuff. The answer is not that a bunch of a, a bunch of um, politicians were stupid here. Um, that's like such a that's such a, a a flip kind of answer. The real answer is that the world economy is collapsing because people are hopeless. People aren't working and people aren't aren't like contributing and so like the world economy is collapsing because people don't have faith in the markets because why would you have faith in the markets if like your house keeps getting fucking stepped on right like uh that's the real answer to fix a script but that we we operate in this kind of universe where it's like he he's like oh no but these underdogs with you know their limited resources can still save the world the sort of optimistic apocalyptic vision and that is i think like it's appropriate to the Showa era. It's appropriate to a ton of 80s anime. It's appropriate to um, where these movies kind of come from and, like, uh, uh, like in terms of, like, the Japanese source material. Um, and it's, like, in, in an era when the Transformers movies end up being, like, mostly remembered for, like... Uh, how fucking long they were and that one of them has a joke about Romeo and Juliet lost. In an era when blockbusters are so cynical and irritatingly inhuman, make a movie that's about like the best parts of humanity. And that's part of the reason I love this movie is it's like it's optimistic as fuck, but it doesn't feel like another version of fake and cynical bullshit. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And like even the like um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, part of the part of the Jaeger program. It doesn't matter if you are um, a scientist. It doesn't matter if you're Hannibal Chow trying to make money. Everyone's on the same side, right? Like even the dumbass politicians who are not funding the Jaeger program, they're not like, like I know I you could there there could have been a conspiracy subplot or whatever. But what's on screen is just like bad decisions to try to keep people safe with limited resources right like all like it it seems somewhat funny on paper that they would go for the wall program but i think you're right peter like there is a cost and money's running out and the markets are being flooded but once hannibal chow figures out that he can help out he goes to help out like there's there is this sense of like yeah we are definitely living in this like nightmare society but uh yeah, I mean, we're still kind of all in it together. And that, you know, having like Hannibal Chow and Charlie Day's character a big part of that message, I think, stops it from being too much of just Charlie, uh, Charlie uh, Hunam's um, part of like a generic action star. We need to take the fight to them. Uh, and it doesn't hurt that obviously the big fucking Independence Day speech is delivered by Idris Elba, who can give a good, good rah-rah speech. Um, uh, you know, he, he makes good lines like, uh, we're canceling the apocalypse seem like it on paper. That seems probably a little lame. And if like Bill Pullman was delivering that independence day, maybe be somewhat laughable, but, uh, works for him. Uh, dude, there's a, they're doing the line reading, like the table reading in the special features and Andrew Zalba has this like proud, like little boy smile. Like he's just like a little kid. Like he's, he's just like. And we're canceling the apocalypse because you're not doing it's a table read. So you're not doing the full, you know, deep throated kind of yeah. thing. But he just seems like a little kid. It makes I, me really happy. He's I just recently like excited. He's like, I'm doing I get to do my Independence Day speech because at yeah. this point, Idris Elba. And it, 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 he he's not he's not talented, huge yet. He's on the process he's of being here. a talented, experienced yeah. actor. But if someone said Idris Elba should be James Bond, you'd say who? 
Well, the and their guy. And, well, and Del Toro wanted Tom Cruise for it because he still wanted to work with Tom Cruise. Still wanted to work with him after, um, and unfortunately, he had signed on for something else and and couldn't do it. Did I? Re- I there was a Wait, recent- is Tom Cruise once he's done with the Mission Impossible movies going to bring Del Toro back to do the. Because that, that's his thing, right? He's cherry-picking directors yeah, that he I mean, loves. Oh, I mean, yeah. He keeps making movies with the fucking... Uh, uh, Oblivion uh, guy, yeah. Oblivion guy, yeah. I'm trying to think of the Tron legacy guy. But he was... I mean, I guess he wasn't in that movie. But it is. Fun fact, Peter. Same guy. Um, the uh, What I was going to say is that I recently read an interview with Idris Elba where they talked... Where, where he was talking about some of his like past characters and asked how he got into the character for Shere Khan in the Jungle Book or something. I may have this a little off, but essentially he was asking about Shere Khan in the Jungle Book, and he's like, well, what'd you do for that to get that voice right? And he goes, oh, it's just my voice? Like, that's what I sound like? <laughs> like he's like, he's like I, don't, I don't do anything in any movie I'm doing. That's always what my voice sounds like, and they thought it sounded good for Shere Khan. <laughs> like, it's such a true, like, he does he, he, I mean, he, he's a very talented actor, but he got, there's like 75% of the work being done by just how he sounds, which he acknowledged very humorously in this interview. Like, yeah, he's, um, yeah, he's, he, he won a genetic lottery. Uh, yeah. that doesn't mean he's not ex- incredibly talented. Incredibly talented. But like, yeah. But he's just like endlessly charming and handsome, but also has this voice where it's like yeah. when, yeah, when he gets to do the Independence Day speech, yeah, it's, it's not laughable. Like, I've heard, I've watched this movie multiple times, and I was like, I got a little, yeah, I got a little like you know that feeling in your chest when like something actually like resonates with you, like yeah, like wait, hold on, this is what it feels like to be alive. Like it 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 hit me this time, which I yeah. um usually when I watch these big spectacle movies, I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool how you hid that cut behind the guy's back in that scene so that you can bring this truck into this next shot. Like that's yeah, that's like kind of my level of appreciation for a lot well, of these. Well, for what it's worth, I actually, I actually think Tom Cruise could have done this speech, but he would have done it like differently. Because I mean, Idris Elba just has, has a very calm, like raised voice. Tom Cruise, and I, I don't mean this as a joke. Tom Cruise gives speeches like this all the fucking time in his movies, but he yells them at top volume. Like that would have been the difference. It would have been, "We are canceling." <laughs> oh, yeah. whole, whole, yeah. whole different ball game but yeah I mean I th- think it still would have worked because Tom Cruise at like max intensity yelling is also very like motivating just a little different I also when also, you couldn't you couldn't see him above everyone else I think that would have maybe taken away from it well it okay Idris Elba does stand on top of a kaiju to give the speech so sure. or on a, a Jaeger to give the speech yeah. so Tom, Tom uh, Cruise has to do that just in all the scenes <laughs> Um, the last thing I want to say before we get into the movie itself is that I do think I kind of forgot that this movie um, you know it, it seems like kind of obvious on paper especially because they refer to like the growing size of the monsters as like category you know they, they name they have the same rating that they do for hurricanes but mm-hmm. there's a part in this where it was like oh as the monsters get more intense it's kind of like insane that people still live on the coast like why is it hasn't everyone in the country migrated to you know, Nebraska or something so that like, they're not at constant risk of a giant monster destroying the town. And then like, you know, like a a stupid light bulb went off in my head where it's like, Oh yeah. Like that is the commentary here. Like they specifically call out that like through global warming, (laughs) 
and man-made climate change, we have made this the, – like the aliens that live in the portal under the ocean have been waiting for us to make the Earth habitable for them. And that's that's what we've done. And yes, the storm slash monsters are getting stronger as they – as as in the same way that hurricanes and other storms and natural disasters are getting stronger. And there's, there's only so many places you can move from a giant uh, escalating uh, cl- you know crisis of, of destruction. That actually might keep you like immediately safe, but long term safe in a collapsing world. Um, it's only so much you can do. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is the commentary. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. They also um, in that same speech, they uh, Charlie Day confirms that um, they killed the dinosaurs as a trial run. Yeah. But it was it was uh, too hot then. Yeah, yeah. They they wanted to they wanted to come back. They're really um, like the Goldilocks, right? It, dinosaurs too hot. Then it was too cold, and then through global warming, we made the Earth just right. Mm-hmm. Um, what did we watch? We watched something else recently where they they did the uh, they live. Hey, we, they live. Yes, they live. Uh, also uses that same commentary. I think they live gets more credit for it because it was in the eighties. Yeah, um, but. Um, they, they, they live should get also, way more credit for it, by the way. And they live stays on it longer. When Charlie Day is ranting, it's very easy to like ignore him because like characters make him repeat the important part of any speech. Yeah. Um, like it's not he's, actually he's important that excited. they killed the dinosaurs, yeah. but it is important that like the other part of the speech is important, like that they have been waiting to harvest us, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Idris Elba, I think, makes him repeat that part of the speech. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we should uh, we should get into it. Yeah, Peter, you ready uh, to skip the Atlantic rim, rim? Oh, go ahead. What were you saying? Oh yeah, do you want to rim it? <laughs> yeah, no sex jokes in forty minutes. So I think we're doing pretty good. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty mm-hmm. good. But yeah, I want to rim it. Mm-hmm. Let's do a good rim job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want you to be Pacific about the area you want to rim. <laughs> Great, let's get to the Pacific Rim plot points. Uh, That's not even a joke. Run us through the plot of Pacific Rim. Specific the Jaeger program. <laughs> Giant robots they didn't say we could build. Can I do it all like Charlie uh, Hunnam's? Charlie Hunnam? Can we talk about just Charlie Hunnam? Get it out of the way? Yeah. I think, I, I think he's the he's the thing that people most complain about in this movie, right? Yes, I do. I mean, he's he is fine. He's serviceable. He's very serviceable. I mean, the here's the ultimate problem is that he is surrounded by fucking awesome actors doing good things. Charlie Day. Who have, I think they have a bead on their characters. Idris Elba. Yeah. So, you know, it's it has that problem where the supporting cast is stronger than the main character. And the main character is also not that good of an actor. Everyone else is a really good actor. He's not. I don't think he's like. I'm sure there's other examples I can think of if I wasn't tired around, like, actors who are uh, just fucking terrible in their movies while surrounded by a good cast. Like, he's not terrible, but 
It does feel like part of the reason I was making fun of his opening narration is it sounds like someone who is acting. Like he did you watch Undeclared, Peter? Yeah, I did. So he's really good in Undeclared. I lo- he's good in Undeclared and he he plays an actor in Undeclared and he's constantly like he's the joke is that he's handsome and not a very good actor. And you see him sometimes do these little like scenes of like Shakespeare or like, you know, putting on his action voice. And like the joke is is that he's bad at that. He's good at playing that, but he's bad at that. And so it's kind of like I do think when he's doing the like we were prepared speech at the beginning, like it sounds like his character in Undeclared trying to do the grizzled action person. It doesn't doesn't work. I actually wish like I know he was in um Sons of Anarchy, which I never watched, because um, it looked terrible. Um, it's a, it's not a it, good show. It's, yeah, a, never, it's a show that was that was uh, dramatically compelling for like a couple seasons, and then it fell into edgelord bullshit. Yeah, I mean everything about around it and the fans of it also seems terrible. So it's definitely something I never picked up on. But like, I do think that there's been a huge like um, mistake in the universe that has him constantly doing these like gritty action roles when he is very good in comedy on like on an undeclared type show. So I don't know what happened there. So yeah, I mean he's he is he's the, definitely the worst character in this movie, which is somewhat of a problem for the main character, but he's also I don't think as bad as everyone says and there's so much good stuff going around that he can fade into the background a lot of stuff. But yeah, him saying the drift is stupid every time. Yeah, okay, so I think part of the problem is he hasn't dialed in his American accent that well in this movie. Um, his American uh, hunk accent, I guess, in this yeah. movie. He's in America, um, like, bitter. I think he's good in... Um, I think he's good in uh, in his next movie he makes with Guillermo del Toro um, and um, Crimson Peak. Yeah, he's good in Crimson Peak. Yeah, I don't think he's, like, a horrible actor, but I don't think so either. I'm, not, I'm he's definitely in this, not saying the, well, all right, so here's here's the here's the nice thing about him in this. Um, no, I don't think he sells uh, he sells a lot of the the lines, particularly the last lines in the movie where he's like. I don't think the voiceover. To, to make, they should have had Idris Elba do the voiceover. I think that was a huge like. You have literally one of the best voiceover artists who can make almost any line compelling, and you have Charlie uh, Hunnam do it instead. I think Charlie. Uh, here's where I think Charlie Hunnam does a good job. I think he does a really good job in the middle part of the movie where he's bonding with Mako. Yep. Yeah, that part's fine. And I mean, he's that's like what he's really good at. encouraging. He's, he's good he's at really... being charismatic. That's what he was good at in Undeclared, too. He's and... good at charismatic, and I don't think he comes off as a douche, which a lot of these sort of, like, blonde leading guys of the 2000s, like, yeah. they might be charming for a second, but then they smile a certain way, and you're like, oh, that's, that's douche. Yeah, I do, th- I do think Freddie a... Prince Jr. would have been worse. <laughs> he has. A, I don't know if he was in contention for a role, but I agree that would have been a step. He would have been worse. Um, what was the? What, who's the the lead guy in Tron Legacy? Who um, knows, Peter? <laughs> uh, Garrett uh, Garrett Headland has douche energy, and he's mostly cast as a douche after um, after Tron Legacy, even in good movies. Yeah. Um, like you know, there's there's just certain actors. Hayden Christensen, like he. There's just certain actors of this era that like kind of have like douche vibes. Yeah. And. Um, they uh i don't think he has douche vibes i think he sometimes has dumb guy vibes which is fine um but he i think when he's standing up for mako i totally believe it like they do have like a little bit of chemistry just enough to get you get you through the movie i don't believe him in moments of uh mortal dramatic terror 
because he has to do like a grumbled like military kind of voice. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy him as depri- I don't buy him as like when he's like just give me my you know my day's work from like I don't buy any of that. That's I buy him as a as a nice guy who is I buy him as a nice inherently decent person who is standing up for uh, Mako. Uh, yeah, that part I, I buy. Is the I most don't buy part of the movie. I don't buy him the give. I've given up on life, and I'm. I, it almost feels like no. it's perform. That part feels very performative. You are 100 percent right. Yeah, the the, the 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 um. I'm dealing with trauma too. Uh, just feels very very fucking funny up against Rinko Rinko Kikichi, who is like. Yeah, genuinely a really good actor. Yeah, like she's again. I, I honestly think that if you still show all those scenes, but have Idris Elba just sort of tell the story over it, you fix all of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really have a problem with him. The, I, I think that uh, particularly when people revisit this movie, I think that they will see what they see in Charlie Hunnam. Um, like that's kind of just like he's just kind of like a cog in a bigger part wheel and this movie is about uh people working together as a team yeah. it's not about individuals yeah. uh in fact like the ending doesn't work unless you have um multiple jaegers working together to get uh the final uh jaeger into uh, the gypsy danger it through the uh the portal yeah like the point of the movie is like we have to all work together we have our home team and we've got our other soldiers out in the field and we're like making sacrifices all together like charlie charlie hunnam is trying to decenter him sorry uh raleigh played by charlie hunter is trying to decenter himself from the movie constantly yeah like he's not trying to be captain america he's actually trying to like slink into the background a little bit um <laughs> I, he's, like, yeah, he, I could literally not do this all day i'm gonna give up pretty quick yeah he, he, he's like i will do everything that is required of me within this yeah. within this movie um that one guy's mean to me again i'm leaving apocalypse <laughs> like, or no apocalypse guy it's but he's like but he actually says it with the if that guy does that again i'm gonna leave <laughs> He only does – yes, he only he only does – the only time he, he in any way is like I think like competitive or douchey or whatever is when he's like trying to make his team better um, or he's like trying to answer an insult to Mako. And that's where I think he works and I think that's the most important part of the movie. Like I think I buy him as Mako's friend and th- that's where I'll leave it I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I fine. think Charlie Hunnam works there, doesn't work as macho cool guy. No. But – a big part of this movie, uh, one of the most central tenets of this movie, um, is that um, if you are good at something, you should continue to fight and and get out there and work through your trauma and like continue to push forward and be good at it, like Mako does. And if you are stoking up yourself on macho, uh, you know, macho denialism of the self, and you're bottling your trauma, you are genuinely considered dangerous in this movie. Uh, uh, shoving your your trauma down and not actually contending with it, and hiding behind like some sort of macho egotism, yeah, um, is considered like so dangerous that like you'll be taken off the mission by Idris Elba in this movie. Yeah, especially because of how the Jaegers work, and yeah, it's it is about like it's definitely a greater good movie, right? Like, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, that's why I love it. It's because yeah. it's not about people all vying to sit on the hero chair. It's about a bunch of people who are like, that person's really fucking good at their job, and I'm gonna make sure that I am there to get them to the position they need to be in. Like, yeah. I'm gonna make sure I'm in position so that they can be in position. Yeah. So really quickly. Uh, 
Peter called out the opening scene. Uh, to pause on that really quickly too, with the with the monster, or the kaiju destroying the Golden Gate Bridge. My one criticism of this movie, from a monster perspective, is that the monsters look so goddamn good during the day, and we barely see them during the day. Like that opening scene where it's—I mean, it's—it's it's, you know a little bit overcast, but that was a common theme in the Godzilla movies. That like, man, they just they when they when they shoot them during the day, it doesn't look as good, and that's actually a common refrain that's occurred for like you know yeah the dinosaurs don't look as good in jurassic park when they're in broad daylight as opposed to like the t-rex night scene or something like that because you know night can hide some of the technical limitations of special effects and so the fact that like that opening scene in in the daytime looks as goddamn amazing as it does it it does make me wish we got more of that also like it's such a compelling opening few minutes there's also a part of me that wishes we got a longer version of that they really yada yada pass like so yeah there's monsters they keep getting bigger they keep going we build a bunch of acres to fight them okay yeah and so now what happens is we're at this point where charlie and his brother they're we got good at it we were killing all the monsters and all of a sudden they start getting bigger and uh, and Charlie's brother dies. This great scene of like the destroyed Jaeger on the beach, having lost their battle to the monster, um, and that's when things start falling apart. The the monsters are getting bigger. The Jaegers are losing. The military has to do a, a new strategy. They decide to build the walls, and then uh, eventually, they, but they're still Jaegers who are are doing things occasionally, but they don't have the budget. Forum and the whole point is is that they're trying to they want Charlie back because he was the way the Jaegers work is that they're too big to operate with one person's brain uh, because you're kind of plugged into them and it's doing your motion so it makes you crazy and so you have to kind of share hemispheres with another person which is called the drift so you're basically plugged in you're psychically linked and then you two are shouldering the psychic that weight of the of controlling this this enormous uh, machine with your mind uh but only certain people are drift compatible because you see all their innermost thoughts so charlie uh charlie uh Hunnam and his brother were but so now that he's dead he's like well i can't be a, you can't just go be a pilot if you can't find someone else that's drift compatible but idris elba's character pentecost um this this movie has great fucking aliens by like aliens two aliens dollar sign <laughs> names where it's like fucking Pentecost and Hannibal and like just kind of really keys into that energy of like hey these like these like I I don't know how to describe it but there is like like Bishop it just it works really well and in the same way that like Pentecost and I don't know I I I think besides aliens this is the best movie names. Of all time. Yeah, yeah, they're all they're all very evocative and you can tell that like even like with Pentecost, I'm like, I don't know why that character is named after a particular feast day where like the Holy Spirit came down, but like um maybe it has to do with Del Toro being like this this he's the Pentecost for this this group. He comes down and touches them with Who cares? It sounds cool. Yeah. They knew that they couldn't name someone Lent or the Feast of the Assumption be a shitty name. Pentecost? Pentecost sounds great. And it so, just means like whatever, 50th, right? It doesn't mean it doesn't mean like touched by fire or whatever. It means like 50th. Yeah, it means 50 costs. Yeah, because it's like 50 days after. Um, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Good yeah. name. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they, he, you know, they, he's working on the wall. The wall doesn't work immediately. 
Um, and he basically gets sucked back into to working with the Jaeger program, which is now underfunded and basically being read as a side project because after losing uh, funding from the military. But again, they still seem to be killing monsters. They're, I know there's a lot of the stupidity of where they're funding or just the government's running out of money. But like the Jaeger program seems to be working better than anything else. Like, right, they're not getting wiped out every time. Uh, but they are but they are running low on machines. There's only, like, four left. Uh, and one thing I like, too, just to do a quick pause on, like, the, the thing about, you know, there's all these different monster designs and there's category, you know, one, two, three, and they're getting bigger. And they all, they all have kind of, like, different powers and they, they have a little bit different features. And it's like, yeah, that's the – when you find out where the kaiju come from – it's this. It's the same reason why all the Jaegers look different, right? Like they build new tech, they uh, they add new things that they think could be more successful. Like it literally is the exact same thing. The reason why all these Jaegers are designed differently is to try new ways to fight the monsters, and the monsters, the kaiju, are designed differently to figure out what's the best way to accomplish their mission because they are designed uh, things that they're sending up to destroy us. So I, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I love it as well. Like they are they're um, intelligent design. <laughs> yeah, they're both, but they're both like they're both intelligent design to basically figure out how to Swiss Army knife everything they want to accomplish. And when one doesn't work, they build another one a little bit different. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and step up, uh, step up production when that doesn't work. <laughs> so when he goes back, they say they they meet. Uh, he's like you. Yeah, Pentecost is like, you, we're going to bring people in. We know you can drift. I don't care what anyone says about you. You can drift. So we're going to bring in all these people. And meanwhile, this guy can drift. This guy can drift. We know he can drift. We just got to find a drift buddy for him. Uh, but you can pick. You can pick any of your drift buddies. We got to save the world. Um, and uh, and Mako Mori is kind of this person who's helping facilitate that. Um, but Charlie's immediately like, what's your deal? Or Raleigh, I guess, immediately like, what, what, what's your deal? Why can't she do it? She seems to want to do it. She's doing training stuff with me. She's helping me pick candidates. And the reason to, you know, to yada yada through some of that is that she was a child who Pentecost, uh, um, rescued from destruction in a city and kind of sees him as sees her as a surrogate daughter and so she he is he is reluctant in a world where everyone has lost everything to put his effectively adoptive daughter at risk um but you know uh, uh raleigh eventually convinces him that that's the only person i'm gonna drift with and and so you have um you know in in classic kind of godzilla movie style you have like a fight where they're successful fights where they're not successful but meanwhile, they just keep getting bigger. And they're also starting to, like, predict, like, hey, this time two are going to come. They have this clock that kind of ticks down through that. And then the other plot, which I think outside of the action stuff is obviously the most compelling, is Charlie Day. And then there's another scientist. Charlie play- Day plays Newt. I don't remember the other scientist's name. Uh, Gottlieb. Gottlieb. So they – but they have a – you know, they're kind of competing theories and Charlie Day is like something's not adding up. Um, and they have a part of a brain that he drifts into and he starts to see like visions of their plans and that there's like actually things sending – there's a whole alien species that's sending them up. So he starts going on about like I need a – that's only a part of a brain. I'm not seeing the full picture of what their plan is. I need to go – 
track down a whole brain. And that's what leads him to the black market and Hannibal Chow. And again, a lot of great world building seeds about what some of the products they're using from this world of like discarded kaiju and that being a huge part of the black market and what people want to buy and all the different things that come to their great scenes. Uh, but ultimately, um, they, there's a, there's a, another kaiju that, Oh, sorry. There's kind of a two-way street. They realize that because Char, because they're a hive mind, and Charlie's plugged into them, they now know about uh, Charlie Day's character. And mm-hmm. so uh, there's a there's a kaiju attack that occurs where they're kind of going after him. That kaiju dies. It gives birth to this other little baby, stupid one <laughs> that dies almost immediately. And they get the brain, and they um, they do the full. Uh, they do the full drift in with Gutley helping to shoulder the psychic load. And that's when they realize this big plan they've been working towards to basically go into the hole in the ocean where the portal, where the, all, they're sending all these kaiju through. They're going to send through a kaiju with a thermonuclear device. They're going to, or the, a Jaeger with a thermonuclear device. And they're going to blow it up and, and through this, this like psychic link. And they're like, that's not going to work because you actually can't get through that portal. Uh, because it's the skin of the monsters that allows them to travel through. So they're getting set up to die. So they go to do that. And at this point, one of the other like secondary characters have died because they're, they're down to two of the Jaegers. Panikos says, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight with them. And it's just two left. And they meet their first category five kaiju, which this is huge fucking cool monster. They're having a big ocean floor fight. Uh, Charlie Day is able to get the message to the, the Jaeger in the nick of time that uh, you need to cover yourself in the skin of the monster, which they, they basically ride the category five down through, drop the thermonuclear bomb blow them all at smithereens and yeah everything about the underground portal and the little alien race that lives under the ocean sending up monsters rules and is good and i love it and yeah i love this whole movie peter this movie's really good yeah this movie rules thanks for uh recapping it but yeah like much uh, easier than final wars <laughs> yeah probably um Del Toro is, uh, is you know, his, his movies are, are clocks right like yeah. every piece is in its, its proper position right um but um, I, one thing that I really like about the movie is there's a specificity to how the fights are laid out where I always feel like I am um, present in the fight. Like there's some sense of danger to me, even though I'm, I'm at home um, on my couch, but also that like the well you live by an ocean so it is there is always a little bit of danger for you yeah i think i don't remember if they do a nod at san diego being destroyed they san francisco gets blown up but i don't know about san diego um i don't even know if they they reference la getting blown up (laughs) um but um the uh oh but like the, the i get the sense of placement that we talk about all the time with fight scenes like i always know what the fuck is going on i always feel like i'm in a real world and i kind of have to like get into like the details of why let's I think get rants and so raves good and like it's a fighting hacks and pranks yeah it's a fucking it's a fucking fighting movie so you have to talk about what works here right yeah so um i think del toro was the, was the correct person to kind of usher us into the era from practical suits into um cgi kaiju um there were a few attempts before this to have cgi kaiju um and uh none of them really that successful 
Um, this was, I think, the the, the correct version of, of ushering us in because um, he had an understanding of the basics of how to scale CGI fights to constantly remind you of the scale, constantly remind you of, of what's going on so that the 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 um, the Jaegers never ever look like a six foot tall robot. They never look like an Ultron model or something. They always feel giant. He puts in these small details that are like almost imperceptible um, unless you're watching the movie in slow-mo, but your brain is picking up on them. Like the scene where he's uh, uh, the Gypsy Danger is fighting that monster in Hong Kong and sort of the centerpiece fight. Um, and he's smashing the monster's head in with two shipping containers. Oh, yeah. All the stuff that's coming out of it is essentially just scale reference models. So there's a moped that falls out, a TV falls out, a couch falls out. Like, it's it's almost like a joke. But, like, your brain registers those objects, right? Like, yeah. your brain, those aren't just, uh, like, little pieces of, of flotsam. And my problem with watching, like, the Transformers movies, notably... Is it feels like I'm just watching close-ups of like a microwave exploding from several different angles. Like yeah. I don't know what that piece is. I don't know what that piece of doodad is. I don't know where it refer- where it is in this fight. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't have any sense of relative place in this fight. Like I don't. Have yeah. In some ways, you would it. say you've become so numb you can't even see what's going on there. That's so. I would say that. I wish there was a song to, uh, to encapsulate how I feel. There's not. Um, uh, someone should someone should come up with that song. They shouldn't. Um, you're right. I should feel alone. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, music is supposed to be alienating. <laughs> but like, I think the I think no the the, the music- part where I didn't mention this is part of, like I didn't you know I didn't drill in too much to the fight scenes, but like the fight scene where they're fighting in like wherever it is, I forget what city it is actually, but where they fucking drag that boat out and like that's Hong Kong. Yeah, you yeah. just see. Um, you see every little bit of like the water pouring out of it. Like you see every little detail on the ship and it just, it looks just amazingly rendered. Like it's a real boat. And then all the different like cracks and curves when it hits, um, when it hits the kaiju, it, it, you're right. Like it is, it is not, it actually is, is fulfilling something that the, uh, the, the show, uh, and the 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 suitmation era couldn't do that then like the Michael Bay and the Transformers didn't do because they weren't concerned about detail. So one of the things about like uh you know the the heist and the Showa area era is that you know they were working with models, but there's only so much detail you can do depending on what scale that you put it on, right? Like when they're doing about I don't know enough about scale and special effects, but one of the things that like I made a joke that some of the people didn't want to work on Return of Godzilla because they had made him 80 meters tall as opposed to 60 meters tall. But part of the reason was that they felt like it was going to impact the models and how how and, and some of the art that comes in the model making because by making Godzilla larger, you have to change the scale of everything else that you're creating in a way that basically sacrifices the ability to do a certain amount of detail. And, but even at, even at, you know, a lower scale, there's only so much detail that you can just provide both from a cost perspective, but also just a realistic, you can't make, you know, you can't really make uh, a, a scale car look exactly like a real car to the level that they were, you know, producing them in the, 
60s and 70s. And then to your point, Peter, when they're making the Transformers or some of those other CGI spectacles, they are they are looking for the main things, and a lot of times they feel airless and they feel lifeless, but there's they're not really rendering the level of detail of, of destruction. Things blow up, there's explosions, there's fire, there's sand. You're moving too quickly to really be able to appreciate anything. So in some ways, they're replicating some of the other challenges from that Sumation era, but they're doing it not because of the limit of physical models, but the cost savings and laziness at really rendering the world. And I, I think you're right. Like, everything looks so goddamn good in this movie. And I think later on with the MonsterVerse with the same studio and special effects house, because they are, take, they are taking that idea of like, hey, here's, here's something that we actually couldn't do in the Sumation era. We, we, it's true that we couldn't make the monsters look as realistic from a because guy in the suit versus um, versus computer graphics and, and CGI, but we also have the ability to, if you know, if we care about it, to make the world being trampled look more real too. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. The, connecting the two eras, like, and something that they couldn't do except for in sort of trick shots in the Heisei era is. Um, and they wouldn't they wouldn't actually add this much detail because like they knew a lot of these movies were headed to TV where like it would all be lost on you. Right. So, yeah, um, is they add uh, texture to we're talking about scale like they literally add texture to like the creatures uh, skin and flesh um, so that there's like literal scales on them. Right. Like you can see like the cracks in its flesh and make out like the the pores in its face in a way that like. You wouldn't be able to see just, like, looking at a fucking iguana. <laughs> but, like, if that iguana was suddenly, you know, um, 250 feet tall, um, you could you can make out those details. And while we're talking about the monsters, we also have to talk about the, the mech suits. Because the mech suits, uh, the way that they, the way that very often CGI models are created, um, they don't have specific... <sighs> They don't have specific rigor for how um, how long a model can actually stretch. So they don't have that rigor and that discipline, I've noticed, from like movies from this era forward, um, where uh, a lot of the models end up looking sort of gummy um, because they're operating on either extremely simplified models. Um, they didn't have the time to build out more complex models. But like Spider-Man in the Amazing Spider-Man movies... Um, from the same era, like Spider-Man looks like fucking rubber Johnny in certain shots. Like, he oh has yeah, no bones. I, I just ac- actually recently we watched both of those. Um, looks like shit. It looks so bad. Um, what he did for the the the, the um, Jaegers, and this adds so many so many levels of expression, is that the Jaegers all have this sort of underpinning of nuts and bolts and parts that are extremely rigid. And you'll see parts moving in a shot, but, like, usually the gears are obscure. There's, like, one gear shown in an opening shot where you can see, like, an arm. It's almost like a rocket punch. Like, an, the arm's, like, locking in to smash um, the kaiju in the opening scene, the opening fight. Um, and, like, by giving these, these kaiju these sort of rigid features, these nuts, these bolts... Um, you're giving it an, an, a true anatomy that has a weight to it. And, and we've talked a lot about floaty fights where it doesn't, you don't totally understand why 
a character is like operating that space or like what the impact is of a character getting punched like when they're CGI like there's there's not like a connection point um this gives you that connection point right like this gives you um the 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 gravity and the weight of that CGI that's usually missing because like they're not spending the time to have a character kind of have to settle back on their haunches right Usually just going from punch to punch to punch and just keeping some sort of chaos moving. And when movies prioritize chaos as excitement over um, dynamic, punchy, like dynamic, impactful fighting, it has a cost to the viewer. It ends up all just looking like CGI sludge. And with this, by giving everything such weight... Uh, and foregoing rapid cutting, rapid editing, making editing a specific choice to add more weight to a moment, um, it makes the kaijus feel heavy as fuck. <laughs> like, it makes the kaijus feel like you're like, okay, this is actually a skyscraper that can walk. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. And that, that's where, like... Um you know, Pacific Rim Uprising gets it wrong. I I jokingly texted you, like, I thought I just like watching giant monsters fight and I would enjoy it regardless. And I guess that's not true. <laughs> um, which which is because, like, I've watched so many Godzilla movies and I do just like giant monsters crashing into stuff. But there is a way with CGI to make that boring. Like, forget about the... Forget about the human characters. At the end of the day, if you're... If you're which are also bad in... In uh, the the Pacific Rim sequel, but if your if your monsters feel weightless and boring, you end up with Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen, where it's just in in determinable, like fucking shiny stuff crashing into each other, and you're not wowed by any of it. Like it's not spectacle, even. It's just like. It's a video game cutscene that was rendered a little bit more better and had more money thrown around it. And like it's I skip video game cutscenes a lot of times because who cares? Yeah. And it, it it confuses chaotic energy with dynamics, right? Like uh like it, it's as if it's it's a giant experimental film um where uh it's breaking basic film rules that let you communicate where creatures are it's not using uh and it's not using the basic um language of communication that all media has where it's like you find something that lets me identify who's the good guy who's the bad guy who's character a who's character b very often in transformers fight scenes and a lot of fight scenes of this era because they don't have any sense of color palette and they don't have any sense of um, placement of the characters within a, a particular scene. I get confused who's who in transformer scenes. I'm like, wait, who's who's supposed? Who do I want to win here? It looks like that guy got punched pretty hard, and I'm seeing a lot of metal parts flying. Well, and, and then you thing- see like yeah, impossibly giant things, and instead of zooming in on that, you are focusing in on like one character doing a goofy leap away from an arm. And it's like, I feel no tension. I feel no realism in the scene. And here, yeah, it does feel like real monsters and real things fighting. And they're smart enough to also know, like um, with this level of scale, they don't need like one person dodging out of the way of like a foot of one of them. Like that. Yeah. It's a force of nature. You can't do that. 
And if I okay, and, and and if I need the score to tell who's winning a fight, you've lost, right? Yeah. Um. So the next point I want to get into is the photography and the color coding. Um, Del Toro is someone who tries to emulate a lot of that like Technicolor film footage, but in like a digital era, mm-hmm. um, by spending an elaborate amount of time on color coding, like making sure that the color color palette within a specific scene matches an overall aesthetic Bible um, and matches the reality of the movie that you've established, but also that individual scenes have some sense of individual character. They become these individual set pieces. And what needs to remain through all that is the individual characters themselves. Obviously, it's easier to tell the difference between a kaiju and a Jaeger, just like reading. Um, But uh, then then two Transformers, like, or whatever, whatever. you know, two robots. Um, in this, he uses he uses a clearly defined color palettes, designed outlines and silhouettes, so that you can always kind of tell what's going on in a scene. To the point that, like, and he holds shots long enough for I- images to register, and then he moves on. So, like, he's not constantly editing and editing and editing uh, away. He's using a splash of color so that you understand emotionally what's happening and how you're supposed to feel. When an arm gets torn off of a Jaeger, um, he uses the right set of shots to, to communicate that, like, this spark is supposed to, these, this set of sparks is supposed to um, establish, like, this would be blood if this were a human being. And then the next set of shots is 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 a calculating sort of like what is the trauma and what is the what is the loss here? Like, does this mean this Jaeger's about to die? Do we not know if this Jaeger's about to die? Is this guy completely fucked up? And then in the middle of the movie, he fucks up the Russian Jaegers that have barely been introduced. And he fucks up the Chinese Jaegers that Jaeger has that, that's barely been introduced. And he does it in such a way where like you don't know totally why they lost that fight. Like, you know their blind spots because the, 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 the kaiju found their blind spots. And, like, communicating those sort of dynamics of what a battle is, is, like, why things are emotionally satisfying. They're not just emotionally satisfying because somebody is jangling digital keys that cost $100 million in front yeah. of your face. <laughs> yeah, and it's why, like, people say this all the time, that there's a reason why... The original Jurassic Park is still better than even, you know, recent sequels. They have – they're able to do a lot more CGI dinosaurs and show the full spectacle of the park in Jurassic World or some of the sequels in a way they couldn't have in 1993. But, like, when they do show the dinosaurs in um, in Jurassic Park, knowing that they have a limit that they can show, it's, it's always meaningful whether you're supposed to be uh, – in in awe of it or in terror there's there's a point behind it and when that point gets lost you end up with meaninglessness and and i do think that pacific rim at least set a template the color coding stuff is a great call out too like it needs to look real within the world that exists in and and since it's not and half of the world that exists in is also made within a you know computer as well you need to figure out how that works well as opposed to just showing you know, effectively you know, animation. And, and yeah, the, the, there's there's so much CGI. Even stuff like, I recently rewatched Ant-Man. And do you remember, like, we talked about this a little bit with Tron Legacy. 
where when I first saw the de-aged Jeff Bridges in Tron Legacy, I was like, holy shit, that looks amazing. And then, like, you know, six, seven years removed, I'm like, that is the worst thing. I've. It looks like complete shit. And I I, I kind of feel the same way about uh, when I first saw Ant-Man and the Michael Douglas de-aging they did, it was like, holy shit, this – this is this is truly something. Like I remember even seeing articles around. No one's talking about the, the like the the special effect that they dropped without much fanfare and like being able to de-age uh, Michael Douglas to the way that it's uh, I- impossible to tell the difference between that and you know Michael Douglas of of thirty years ago. And rewatching it, you know, for the first time in a while, I'm like, oh yeah, that looks like kind of shit. It doesn't look all that good. Like, you know, my 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 understanding of special effects and a few other things has caught up with the fact that it looked good at the time. It doesn't look good anymore. That happened even, you know, seven years before that with Tron Legacy. And then you watch something like this from 2013 and you're like, holy, this still looks amazing. Everything here looks right. It, it looks as good as Godzilla versus Kong, which came out last year. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Not having these, like, washed out muddy colors and these, like, flat images that, like, a lot of Marvel movies end up having really helps sell the illusion. Like, the the having this sort of depth of frame um, and having this color and, like, these sort of, like, complex images that you still know exactly where you're supposed to be looking at any given time is just so masterful. And, like, I think... Um, the, the 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 vivid colors sort of modernize that like show what you're a technicolor film yeah like because it's not a movie with realistic colors like the movie has some drab like um ind- industrial um touches that sort of like um lend like a a base palette like a base palette of like black gray and rust color um and then um splashes of this unnatural green and yellow and blue light that like just really like suck you in in a sort of um, in a way that's like in some ways like kind of um, neon-y and nightclub-y but in, in not in a self-conscious way like right like in a, in a way that's like very artful and I feel like the having that combined with the editing he sort of has like a musical understanding of how long to hold these shots and how yeah. long those shots feel that like separates um, it separates a uh, a magician versus a technician, right? Like, I when I watch Marvel movies, I always understand what's going on more or less. But like, does it have any emotional impact on me? Not really. Yeah, it doesn't have weight. No, the, the, everything. The reason why the summation stuff always worked so well is because it it, it had weight. Because they're like literally. Literally, <laughs> literally, the suit, the suit almost killed a few of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes the weight was a huge problem, actually. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, this has that same like element of weight. I, I actually, I know we're we're running short of time here. I mean, I, I think we really touched on a lot of the high points through this movie. But ultimately, like you know, for my final thoughts, like I, I'm just glad that Del Toro got to make a movie of this scale. Like it, it. He, he makes a lot of down-to-earth movies where you're just, you know, seeing, uh, you know, ghosts or monsters from, like, even, like, even, like, his creature from the, his Universal Monster movie is, like, what if a lady fell in love with a monster and, you know, uh, gra- 
fantastic movie, but it's still very like zoomed in on specific characters and people. And for him to be able to make this like giant fucking spectacle movie, like again, not surprised it's good because of the director that we're we're working with here. But um, you know, if we're if we're getting into the world of having more kaiju, more Godzilla, more more studios willing to fund these you know 200 million dollar giant monster movies like i'm glad del toro not only got one but also i think like as we move into next week and the and the mon and the american monster verse like this clearly is setting the stage for that um like when you watch godzilla 2014 it looks great in the same way that I think this movie does. And they're clearly like, I think Pacific Rim was the first movie that looked like that. And mm -hmm. Godzilla looks like it. And again, having the, you know, I don't want to say this so many times that it becomes an annoying, but like obviously having the same studio and special effects house helps that. But clearly they're saying this looked amazing. Do some of that. Because that is exactly what they do. And I think that's why when we do get our next incarnation of Godzilla, we get one that looks fucking good and not like Roland Emmerich's version or what Michael Bay's version would have looked like. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. And like, this is a movie that like is spectacle filmmaking that has a personal touch, right? Like this is a spectacle filming that feels like it was made by a, a human hand, right? Yeah. Um, like it, it feels personal to del toro's interests and it has what the best moments in star wars have right where it's like um there's like world building and texture but like even star wars a lot of this stuff has a sort of a, a blandness that's been popping in because they've had to produce it so fast and like i rag on marvel stuff and it's not because i think it all looks like garbage but it's that by rushing these things through and not giving them proper time for the the um artists to take their time and by having everything produced on this sort of like machine machine like schedule yeah like you're getting like movies that like functionally work like they're they are they have a beginning a middle and an end like the scripts are more or less sound you know um the 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 the, the technical aspects of them were great but like uh they're often devoid of soul and i just i want more I want more big budget movies that like if we're going to can it be in this tentpole era I would love more big budget movies where it feels like this where it feels like Del Toro is like he just talked about in one of the interviews he talked about like this movie feeling like he's like this is literally me getting to create toys like I am creating scale yeah. models I'm creating actual like toy toys like this is me getting to create toys that came out of my imagination and like what what more could movies be right like um and like every little detail there like the the some of the kaiju look or sorry some of the jaegers look like world war ii bomber inspired and some of them yeah like the helmets on them all kind of look like medieval helmets um like there's no real direct references in this movie. This is not uh, Final Wars in the sense that, like, Final Wars is like, let's see if we can get everything in there from the previous movies. Like, apart from the fact that drift compatibility feels like it's straight up ripped from that Neon Genesis Evangelion episode where they need to time up two, two perfect shots. And so they, like, do ballet class together and stuff. Yeah. One of the best episodes, I think, of TV. It's so good. Um uh, I'm, I'm surprised this movie doesn't have a, a dance sequence. It does have a really good stick fighting sequence, though. It's really good. Um, like, uh, 
there's no real direct references in this. It is it, it it does feel to have come out of Del Toro's mind, even though you know he co-wrote it with a with a scriptwriter, and there was a script doctor who also came in, and yada yada. Like this is this is a collaborative film, and the, the people that work on the movie are like, oh, I had this idea, and Del Toro was like, okay, we'll talk to the prop master. Like, like, this is a movie that is full of collaboration, and yet it, it, it has a soul of something. It has a soul of someone in it. And um, I think this movie is going to come back around in people's people's imagination. Like, it's um, there's, there's no way this movie can de- be destined for, like, either A, um, you know, a blip in, in Del Toro's wonderful career when he got to play with big studio money, uh, or B... Uh, just another one of those uh, big budget movies that sometimes is on FX on a Saturday morning. Yeah, they have uh, the movies. Well, they have the movies. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Glad we got a chance to cover this one in our quest to uh, eventually cover all the Del Toro movies. We're making some very good progress. Uh, but yeah, next week we're returning back to Godzilla. We got we had two more episodes left before we wrap up uh, kaiju movies probably for a while. Uh, we're doing a double ep next week again with uh, 2014's Godzilla... Uh, reboot uh, the the beginning of the monster verse, and then its direct sequel, Godzilla: King of the Monsters. Hoping, hoping Peter likes that one. I I, I feel like I was a people liked 2014. They love Godzilla versus Kong. I definitely felt a little bit like a lone voice in the wilderness, and how good King of the Monsters uh, is, and how much fun it is. Uh, I think I named it one of my best of the year, and. Um, you know, a lot of people don't like that movie. So, Peter, I'm interested where you're going to fall on it. But either way, I think it's going to be a fun week. And then we're going to wrap it up with one, uh, the Godzilla movie that is universally beloved, I think. And um, is our last Toho movie that we've gotten since 20, that we've, uh, yeah, since 2016. Uh, and the only live action version of the, uh, or uh, the, sorry, the only live action uh movie in the Reiwa series that came after Millennium from Toho Studios, Shin Godzilla. And I'm assuming uh, Peter will be watching the dub again on that one. <laughs> consistent. Uh, absolutely not. I watched um, the dub for Pacific Rim. <laughs> French language, American subtitles. Uh, all right. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)